This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We got a busy hour coming your way. Larry Kudlow at the bottom of the hour. Make heads or tails of your economy, not what the numbers say, but how you feel, especially with energy, energy costs going through the roof. Uh, we'll discuss that with Larry. He's got the number one show in Fox Business. And you know we're going to take your calls, as well as if you want to write, BrianKillMe.com. Just click on comments, and I'll try to get to a lot of them today. The President of the United States is probably going to come back from Delaware. Why wouldn't he, eventually? He, he tried so hard to get this job, and he's never there. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. A Christmas gift that's even more alluring than lingerie? Naturally, nude pajamas by Pajamagram. Sensuous and soft, they look just as seductive as they feel. Get naturally nude pajamas today at Pajamagram.com. Number three. This would put Argentina on the brink of winning the World Cup. Gonzalo Montiel can win the World Cup for Argentina with this kick. Penalty kicks, Argentina beats France after a 3-3 regulation plus overtime. Both teams scored in overtime. You'll see uh, and hear more about that. Number two. The NSA was working hand-in-hand with the leading uh, Silicon Valley companies, Google and Facebook and Apple, and they were turning over enormous amounts of information, whatever these agencies asked, without a search warrant or anything else. Glenn Greenwald, Twitter files unfolding the direct role of the FBI in converting Twitter and I'm sure other outlets into doing whatever they wanted them to do. And Twitter execs were even getting uncomfortable with the relationship with the FBI. We have the details. Number one. Is that why he didn't go? Is that visit? Well, I can't speak to why he has or has not gone. I'm just speaking to the fact that it's a bit more disruptive for the president of the United States to travel than you or I. Keisha Lance Bottoms, the former mayor of Atlanta, uh, trying to make heads or tails of why the president has not gone to the border. No one even briefed her because it's inexplicable and not acceptable. Now they are all paying attention. People, networks, politicians. I'm talking about Biden's broken border. What's so amazing to me, you got two million people have been kicked out since Title 42 was put in place. What is that essentially? Hey, we're in a pandemic. You can't come through our border illegally. Allow single men and most people, except for other circumstances, to come through. So when they were not enforcing it or barely enforcing it, 
Lone Star, uh, Operation Lone Star was put in place in Texas. They spend $4 billion to help try to control the border. They can't. They they bust out 14,000 people to northern cities. It still hasn't made much of a difference. And now with Title 42 going away, we're expecting 18,000 illegals a day. This is a wide-open, busted border that the administration, through their negligence or intentionality, has allowed to happen. But now that their people are all paying attention because the numbers and the video is so disturbing. Now, Congressman Gonzalez went into one of these facilities and shot video. Press is not allowed in these facilities. No reason why they say privacy. No, it's embarrassing. If Trump was involved in setting up a facility like this, and there was facilities set up like this, but he was trying to stop the influx. You would you would what you'd be calling for another impeachment of Donald Trump. But instead, Joe Biden doesn't go and he gets a pass. You're talking about one bathroom for 600 people and some of these little children sitting on the cement or linoleum floors in these blankets. So listen to the question that Martha Raddox asked the governor of Texas, having said, uh, having heard everything I just said, cut for open borders. I don't think I've ever heard President Biden say, we have an open border, come on over. But people I have heard say it are you, our former President Trump, or Ron DeSantis. That message reverberates in Mexico and beyond. It was known for the time that Joe Biden got elected that Joe Biden supported open borders. Uh, It is known uh, by the cartels who have sophisticated information whether or not the Biden administration is going to enforce the immigration laws or not is known across the world, but most importantly, known among the cartels. He's being so calm in that question. So it's, for example, if you want to stop smashing grabs in San Francisco, you're at fault if you bring up there are smash and grab opportunities in other cities. No, you want to stop the smash and grabs in San Francisco. And you want the border to be fixed. And someone's ignoring it. So you bring up the borders wide open. Why don't you fix it? And now the talking points from Democrats are it's Republicans saying the border's open. That's the problem. This is really going to drive you crazy. Cut seven. Veronica Escobar, Democrat. Having Republican colleagues go on national TV consistently saying the border is open, the border is open. They're the ones saying the border is open. Um, I think their rhetoric has a role to play as well in what the cartels use. But regardless, I will tell you, the cartels will do anything possible to exploit these folks. Whether they tell the truth, whether they lie, it doesn't matter. So what you have to do is pressure. Listen, you've heard me say this so many times. I almost don't want to say it. You pressure the other country, even though there's 150 countries involved, uh, you pressure other countries to crack down on those human traffickers, to crack down on their own people, to stay in place. This is not the time to go. You expand the consulates for the application purposes. You feel terrible for Venezuela and Nicaraguans, especially Cubans. You have a different situation for them, but they remain in Mexico while their process and background, uh, background checks are done. Now everybody's covering this story because in two days, Title 42 goes away. And then they're going to go from 7,000, which is unsustainable, to 18,000, if not more. And they're all waiting in Mexico right now. Tony Gondal and Bill Malusian's all over. Just follow his feed. You'll learn a lot. Uh, Congressman Gonzalez shows extreme overcrowding at the Border Patrol Central Processing Center in El Paso, Texas. It says he took the video on Friday with 4,600 migrants were to federal in custody. Capacity is 1,040. 
please tell me if that is humane Joe Biden with a big Irish mocking heart while he sits in Delaware totally clueless, not even talking to fellow Democrats like Henry Cuellar, who know how to stop this, know what's worked and what hasn't, gets elected, even though he's a Democrat coming who's pro-life, who's coming out for a strong border in Texas. Cut one. First of all, morale is not good because they feel that the administration doesn't have their backs, number one. Number two, are they prepared? No. Even the $3 billion that you mentioned a while ago, that money is, is going to be used for processing. It's going to be used for food and shelter and transportation of the migrants. It doesn't uh, address the issue that we're facing at the border. Of course it doesn't. Um, I don't want to. I want you to get to get on board with this. I do want you to take some calls, but I do also want to talk about what's happening on Twitter. What's happened over the weekend? More Twitter file drops, and I'm sure with everybody Christmas shopping, Hanukkah shopping, I'm sure you're not running around saying what did, what's the last thing to come out uh, in the past uh, with the past owners of Twitter. But Matt Taibbi is continuing to do this. So after revealing on Friday in the sixth edition of the Twitter files, Taibbi writes, the Twitter employees had near constant communication with FBI agents from 2020 to 2022. Matt Taibbi detailed an additional conflict between the federal agency and the social media company when the FBI appeared displeased with Twitter's response. Matt Taibbi, in July, writes this, he puts forward on this, July of 2020. San Francisco, FBI agent Elvis Chan, there's that name again, tells Twitter executives, you're Roth, to, ex- to expect written questions from Foreign Influence Task Force, the interagency group that has deal with cyber threats. Taibbi writes, the answer was, the questionnaire author seemed displeased with Twitter for implying in a July 20th DHS, ODNY, FBI industry briefing that you indicated you had not observed much recent activity from official propaganda actors on your platform. So they're upset that they're saying, I don't see other countries operating on our platform. He continues, tweet number four, one would think that would be good news. The agency seemed to feel otherwise. Really? So Chan writes, this was quite a, quite a discussion within the USOC, the U.S. IC, intelligence community, to get clarification from a company referring to the United States intelligence community. Taibbi says, tweet number six said this, the task force demanded to know how Twitter came to its unpopular conclusion. Oddly, it included a bibliography of public sources, including a Wall Street Journal article attesting to the prevalence of foreign threats, as if to show Twitter that they got it wrong. They go on to say that essentially Elvis Chan is everywhere. Constantly briefing Twitter. Now, there's no way they weren't doing the same thing to Facebook because we know for a fact that Mark Zuckerberg said that he would brief by Twitter exec, uh, the FBI, about a would-be Russian disinformation campaign that was exactly like the laptop that they got from that laptop repair shop in Delaware. And then when that popped up in October, Mark Zuckerberg told Joe Rogan that was it. That's why we froze it. Uh, And it's that same way Twitter froze it. Jack Dorsey later apologized. Other outlets later found out that it was 100% correct. There is such a pathway now for investigation that you have to ask yourself, Twitter trying to keep foreign actors out of our elections, is uh, FBI trying to keep foreign actors out of our election is fine. Making sure that guys like Charlie Kirk and people like Dan Bongino and Don Trump Jr. were minimized or silenced or shadow banned, however they want to say it and get around it, is not acceptable. And I just also think that Elon Musk is not helping himself by arbitrarily banning people as if it's one man, billionaire, uh, doing things instinctively, uh, just on clear reflexes. 
And as powerful as he is and as smart as he is, it doesn't help his cause. Certainly not helping Tesla stock. So there's a poll put out by Elon Musk himself. Should he stay as CEO? Doesn't mean he shouldn't stay his owner. No. Why would he? How can he? The guy's got a tunnel company. He's got a space company. He's got another company that puts chips in people's brains. And he's got the leading electric car manufacturing company in the world. How could he possibly stay on Twitter on a daily basis? And now social media companies are getting a warning from Democrats as they lose power in the House that you better not change your practices just because we're not in power or there's going to be all types of regulation that will not make you happy. That, that struck Jonathan Turley pretty preventively, uh, uh, greatly, and he wrote a column about it, and we'll discuss it. So here's what Mike Turner says that he's going to request once he gets into power uh, as chairman of Oversight, Cut 17. The FBI had, under the cover of saying that they were pursuing foreign malign influence, had really exploded into an, an activities that in, involved engaging with mainstream media and social media and really impacting what is the normal debate of democracy. Now, what's very troubling here, in my opinion, this was not based on intelligence. You had John Radcliffe on your own show saying, for example, the Hunter Biden laptop, which the FBI was trying to intervene and in, saying that was... Russian misinformation. He said there was no intelligence that substantiated that. I believe that in the end, we will find that there's no intelligence that supports the FBI doing this, that this is a a campaign by the FBI uh, that really is outside of the bounds of anything we would expect them to do. And certainly, you know, very constitutionally troubling. Uh, Yeah. And Turner's sharp, man. So uh, I look forward to hearing from him. I don't want nonstop investigation, but I do want investigations. And we come back. You know, they've been asking crazy things from past Trump officials in office and out of office, unbelievable demands of the president to get his tax returns and business statements. And they got him. But you know what it also means? If the Republicans in charge suddenly decide that they want Joe Biden's tax reform, because as a guy making $250,000 a year become a multimillionaire, even before he became vice president, maybe it can be found in his 501c3s. Maybe it can be found in some of these businesses that we don't really have know much about. Maybe it's time that Joe Biden gets some of the things, some of the scrutiny that Donald Trump's still experiencing. When we come back, I'll take your calls, and then Larry Cutler will talk about the economy and so much more. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think most Americans think it's pretty disgraceful, Martha, that you've been to the border more than Kamala Harris. Um, and, and she's supposed to be the border czar. Um, he's never been there. President Biden hasn't been there. The reason they're not going, I understand from a political perspective, it is an ugly story for them. They have induced this problem. They made promises well over their skis on Title 42. Now I don't know how to get out of it because they have a war within their own party. And if we're looking at 14 to 18,000 people across the border a day, there's going to be mayhem down there. Yeah. Chris Christie again saying it fought out. And I, I just love the people on his 
panel, even the Wall Street Journal reporter, they don't seem to get that this is a festering problem that he made so terrible. And when they generalize and say, well, everybody had a problem, and in 2013 we almost had a deal, nothing to do with this. The border was being, it was busy. We wanted to get border better border security, obviously. We had to get that wall and the barrier. Everyone agreed on that from Harry Reid to, Ch- to Chuck Schumer. Didn't think that was going to be an issue. President Trump got 450 miles done. We know about the things that he put in place. And because there was people coming, it's nothing to do with them, we'd have to stop them, screen them, and get them to stay in Mexico. And we told Abrador that if you don't take them, we're going to hit you with tariffs. And if you don't like that, we're going to pull back aid. And then we're going to reduce trade. You know what, Abrador ends up being the last political leader to recognize Joe Biden as president. And he's pretty much a socialist. I don't know much about him. When he got elected, everyone said, well, that's not good for America. And it probably is in the long run. But, man, he got along with Trump, and they they had to deal with each other directly. Don't tell me it's better. Here's more from Chris Christie, Cut 13. I don't think the Biden administration has much credibility on that when they say that forgiving student loans is because there's a public health risk as well. So they've shown themselves to be fairly flexible in that regard, Martha. Look, in the end, they have let this crisis get to the point where it is. That's why they don't want to go down there. What politicians don't want to go to the scene of a crisis? Only if they created the crisis themselves. And the fact that neither the vice president nor the president has been to the border is something that's going to be very noticed this week, as much even more than has been noticed before. So what you do is you could go down there and you could say things like his spokesperson said, well, when the president goes down, it creates such uproar. Yeah. In a wide open area, it creates uproar. If you ever want to see something desolate outside illegal immigrants and border patrol, you go to the border. I mean, it is no man's land. And there's huge, you need a helicopter, you need a, uh, you need a four-wheel drive vehicle. You got to go through a small town, then you have a big imprint. You got plenty of room to spread out with security. Trump went down there plenty of times. Politicians go down there all the time. And it's a huge border. You got 700,000 miles there. Now, I, I don't know why Governor Ducey doesn't make a bigger deal of it, but I give uh, Abbott, I know he's in an election, uh, a tremendous credit because he had to take $10 million. This could have cost him an election. He had to take $4 billion worth of taxpayer money and use it for Operation Lone Star. And they could say it could be used for other things. And there's a lot of needy communities that could use that. There's fields and there's farms and there's supplements and there's uh, all these types of aid that could be given. But right now, if you can't provide security to your people, you have no choice. So Henry Cuellar gets it. I think Gonzalez gets it. I think Senator Kelly, when he's running for office, he got it. I don't know if he's got it now. Not many other Democrats get it, but now they have to understand it because it is so overwhelming. It's hurting the entire country. And that's the brilliance of sending all these illegals into these major cities because these Democrat left-wing, left-wing cities, these mayors, have to deal with the problem. And they look around. They want to blame a Republican governor. And they go, wait a second, you can't. We're a sanctuary city. We said, we'll come one, come all. And we know that these border communities are no more worthy or unworthy than they are to accept these early immigrants. Why should their lives be ruined and not these cities be stressed? Larry Kudlow next. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Recession pessimism fuels the Scrooge in this holiday economy. 
along with a bear stock market, a housing slump, a drop in manufacturing output. November's retail sales were the biggest decline this year. Worrisome to retailers, shoppers spent less in holiday categories, electronics, clothing, toys. That is from CBS that people have this idea about the economy. They look at uh, numbers that don't really affect their lives. That's a practical look at how everything's affecting the lives this Christmas now that we're done with COVID and trying to get back to normal. Larry Kudlow joins us now, former White House economic advisor, host of the number one show in business television, uh, Kudlow on FBN. What a great year you finished up with, Larry. Congratulations. Thank you, Brian. It's a great blessing. I appreciate it very much. And by the way, FBN beat the competition overall, too. And that's a a terrific thing. When you were done with uh, the White House, did you know you wanted to go back into TV? Were you you going to relax for a while? What did you think? Did you know you wanted to come here? Well, I, you know what? I, <laughs> I was ready to come back to broadcasting. That's for sure. And I was partial to Fox. And one thing led to another. So I think the big surprise was whether I come in, you know, as a Fox News contributor and a Fox business contributor, uh, which was the original idea. Uh, but then later on, um, my friend Lauren Pedersen, who's the head of Fox Business, said, would you do your own show? And I thought about that, and I said, you know what? Yes, these old bones have a lot of energy left in them. This all happened in, uh, uh, you know, early 2021. I guess it was sometime in the winter 2021. Anyway, I wasn't sure, but I got an offer, and um it turned out great. I love it. The whole thing's been terrific. And I get to work with Brian Kilmeade almost every week. So that's great fun, too. Yeah, I love coming on. Usually on uh, on Fridays. And the money you pay me, it really makes it worthwhile. <laughs> I mean, it's just fantastic. Uh, You're a high paid contributor. I know. I take up most of your budget. Uh, so that works out good for me. So I, I wanted to play that that clip from you, Larry. No Be- health care benefits. <laughs> right. Yeah, they don't. I, I shouldn't probably said this on national radio. My fault. And then, of course, you do your Saturday show. Well, you do your Saturday yep. radio show on WABC. So you yep. don't you you work in six days a week now, as opposed yep. to the White House, who was seven. So, um, so I just wanted to play that Mark Strassman on Face the Nation, not just yep. somebody who maybe didn't win an election. And they say that between we, they keep raising rates, it's definitely going to hurt housing and has hurt housing. It will hurt the stock market. There's a drop in manufacturing, and the November sales numbers were not strong. Why is the White House so happy with the economy? Well, they always try to sugarcoat everything, and they've never told the truth about the economy, and they've never told the truth about inflation, for that matter. And maybe we'll get to fiscal policy, which is going to be a big factor in all this. But right now, the economy is very soft. I mean, actually, what we may get, um, we may get a second recession. Uh, it's like called a double dip recession because GDP fell in the first half of the year. Now it's rising a bit in the second half of the year, probably come in around 2%, although it looks like it's finishing badly in November, December, as your clip suggested, uh, manufacturing is down, retail sales are down, housing is down. And then I think the chances of a recession are very high. The probabilities are very high for next year. Uh there's three things cooking out there that you have to watch. One is the conference board's index of leading indicators, which is plunging. Second, 
is the Federal Reserve's M2 money supply, which is plunging. And third, Brian, in the financial markets, short-term interest rates are much higher than long-term interest rates. That's called the yield curve inversion. What it means is the three-month Treasury bill, which is a safe haven, is like four and a quarter, and the 10-year Treasury bond is three and a half. That's a very strong indicator of recession probability in the next year. So I don't want to be the Grinch that stole Christmas. Uh, honestly, I'm an optimist at heart. But I think the reality is um, the numbers are pointing to another downturn in 2023. So the question is, who's going to fund the government and how? It looks like instead of doing a continuing resolution, and you know politics as well as the money, uh, they're going to do an omnibus bill at a worth of $1.7 trillion. It makes no sense to Jim Jordan. He said this last night to Steve Hilton, Cut 28. The idea that the cavalry is coming over the hill, we're going to have a majority in the House of Representatives, for goodness sake. Why wouldn't you do a CR and just kick the funding into next year when we could begin yes. to clamp down on some of this instead of making us wait a year? That's why this omnibus is so darn wrong, and we shouldn't be passing it. I'm not going to vote for it, but I wish the Senate wouldn't bring it up and would just give us a CR into February of next year. So why yeah. wouldn't they? Why, why wouldn't they wait? Like, what, what is it, why is it Mitch McConnell's advantage to do, do this now? This is a huge story, huge story. And it's a betrayal. Uh, Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republican leadership is betraying Kevin McCarthy and the new House leadership. It won't give them a chance to establish their own budget and their own budget priorities, uh, you know, on, on opening the spigots for oil and gas, for example, uh, on putting money into the border. Uh, for another important example, uh, on taxes and regulations, they won't give it a chance for another year. And it just makes no sense. It's an absolute betrayal. And what this is, I don't know. I mean, what you've got is some of these old Senate bulls, uh, including McConnell, uh, but uh, others um, from Alabama uh, and you know, here's here's one way I pick Senator up. Shelby, Senator Richard Shelby. Sorry, but uh, earmarks, okay, earmarks, special interest earmarks are soaring under the Senate plan. Shelby is the leader, but of the top ten, eight of them are Republicans. Shelby is retiring. Um, Inhofe of Oklahoma is retiring. It's like how many post offices can you have with your name on it, for heaven's sakes? And these guys are going to uh, throw it in with Chuck Schumer for an omnibus spending bill that will probably come, by the by, close to $2 trillion, several hundred billion above any baseline uh, that might be conjured up. We don't know because we haven't had a real budget in so many years. Um, this, you know, the House guys. McCarthy and company want their own budget priorities. They want to cut spending. They want to make the Trump tax cuts permanent. They want to open up the oil and gas spigots. They want to protect the border. You know, Title 42 is ending yeah. in two days. And the Bidens have no plan to stop the catastrophe and the disaster that's down at the border. Now, why is McConnell doing this? I mean, McConnell, look, I don't want to personalize this. McConnell has a good conservative record down through the years. He's the guy responsible for the three conservative judges. But for some reason right now, he's betraying McCarthy. And this has got to change. It's a terrible idea. It's probably the number one economic issue. And incidentally, 
this spending, I mean, do you want to spend another $2 trillion a year? The Fed is fighting inflation alone. The Fed could use some help. Less spending would help the Fed right now. In fact, we should have some supply-side growth in the economy instead of going for a recession. That's why I'm so keen on what I call H.R. 1. I think I've convinced McCarthy and Scalise that should be the bill that reopens the spigots for fossil fuels. But the point is, give the House people, the new Republican House, a chance. Don't betray them. Don't stop them. Don't make them wait a full year. Let them begin in January. Any uh, budget bill should be like a couple of weeks to get them into the middle of January, and that will allow them to put up their own budget and then negotiate with the Democratic White House and the Democratic Senate. That's what needs to be done. It is almost it's unfathomable, and no one understands what what McConnell is doing. In fact, there's a very good editorial in this morning's Wall. Street Journal on this subject. So this is a huge story, Brian. And um, we have been fighting it on our show. Mm. Uh, kill the bill. Save America. Kill the omnibus bill. Let McCarthy and company have their say in court. I, I, I'm going to continue all week long on this subject. So what is, uh, in, ter- in terms of automatic withdrawals, how much are we committed to spend domestically? And for, you know, how much is our budget? Before we get into what we need and what, what I want as president, how much do I automatically have to spend? How much non-discretionary spending is there? Do you know? Well, well look, at, no, discretionary spending is the key. It's about $2 trillion. The overall budget is going to be above $6 trillion. Okay. So how much is the really- non-discretionary? Is, is what, two? Two trillion? Uh, no, non non discretionary is the bulk of it. The so called entitlements. Uh, they passed the military bill, eight hundred and fifty billion dollars. Okay, they put that away, uh, but the rest of it is, you know, clo- entitlements uh, close to four trillion dollars. Okay, but here's a very important point, subtle point, but very important: COVID emergency spending, which was supposed to run out. Yes, some of it has. That has come back in Democratic proposals for this omnibus spending bill. They want to take the COVID emergency money and put it in to the budget so that it becomes what's called mandatory spending into the baseline forevermore. And this has got to be stopped. And even more than that, these COVID spending bills, they're essentially welfare bills, housing subsidies, sure. unemployment compensation. Uh, they want a big uh, kitty cha- uh, child tax credit. None of them have any work requirements or workfare. So this adds to the problem that not enough Americans are actually working because they're being paid by Uncle Sam not to work. The uh, Gingrich-Clinton uh, welfare work reforms of 25 years ago have been scrapped. So this is stuff that the House Republican leadership, the new leadership, wants to, uh, you know, erase and stop. Otherwise, you're going to build into this baseline, spending baseline, a massive increase, which will worsen the prospects for inflation. Inflation is slowly coming down. It's very sticky. It's very difficult. Uh, The Federal Reserve is essentially acting alone. The Fed was late. But at least they're getting the job done. They could use some help from fiscal policy because government spending was the original cause of the high inflation in the first place. Right. For all these reasons, 
you know, don't increase mandatory spending. Don't increase discretionary spending. Don't make the COVID emergencies permanent. Uh, please put workfare into these bills. All these things have to be changed. An omnibus spending bill will not change a thing and will force a new House Republican leadership. And no one knows what's in year. it. And nobody knows what's in it. It's going to be a possible read. Real quick. Joe Manchin came out and said the Inflation Reduction Act does reduce inflation. He goes as far as uh, he goes. He says um, the bill, the IRA bill, as far as energy, you know, the inflation it brings down drug prices, it brings down insulin prices, uh, life saving insulin, it brings down health care costs. Allowing pharmaceutical, he says, allowing these pharmaceutical companies to negotiate directly with the government does it? No, it does not. By the way, even that part essentially is price controls which will damage future breakthroughs and innovation uh, in these uh, in these drugs. Look, Joe Manchin is a friend of mine. Uh, he's a good man in general. He made a terrible mistake. He, he fought the good fight on stopping Build Back Better, but he caved in on the Inflation Reduction Act. He caved in because of a fake promise from Schumer and Biden, that he would get some kind of permitting reform uh, for West Virginia's pipelines and for oil and gas in general, oil, gas, and coal. He never got it. He's not going to get it. They double-crossed. He double-crossed Republicans, and the Democrats double-crossed Manchin. So he may be backpedaling right now, but he is completely wrong on this. That Inflation Reduction Act, by the way, which spends about $500 billion dollars on all kinds of phony Green New Deal spending, which itself is inflationary, which did the opposite. Instead right. of expanding uh, oil and gas, it actually causes it to cut back again. That's the root of all evil in terms of the Ukrainian war and financing Putin. And, it's also the root of all evil and, of inflation as well. Right. So I'm sorry, Joe is just dead wrong on this. So, Larry, real quick, we know the president of the United States, the former president of the United States, had an announcement last week, and he announced the NFTs. They ended up being very valuable for him. Were you surprised that was his surprise announcement? Uh, <laughs> yes, I was surprised. By the way, he put out a very good statement uh, on no media censorship and reforming Section 230. He had, he had a very good statement, which unfortunately was not covered because of these baseball cards or whatever they are. Um, I, there's a lot of things in life Brian Kilmeade, that I don't understand, you know, on a day-by-day basis. Right, that's one of them. I am, that's <laughs> one of them. <laughs> All right, Larry. So you're not going to get one. But everybody else did. Evidently, it was very lucrative for him, but it was very interesting. I, I understand that yeah. I'm happy for him, but I just, I don't know that that was the most important thing he could be doing right now. Very, and very, it was you, very diplomatic my, of you. Mind you, I love the guy. I'm very loyal to him. I think he's made some very bad mistakes in recent weeks. But he also came out with a very good statement, incidentally. He made a good speech uh, to some group in Miami, gotcha. uh, Israeli-American group in Miami, about uh, his opposition to anti-Semitism and white nationalism. But he got a standing too, ovation, he, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but again, he stepped on his own line with these baseball cards or whatever they are. 
So, um, you know, I, I just like when he's on message, when he's on policy, when he's on achievement, when he's on the future direction of this country, there is nobody better at American life. Let me just leave it like that. Larry, thanks so much. We're going to watch you today at four o'clock. Larry Kudlow, the number one uh, talk show host in all of Fox, tele- not only Fox, but all of business television. Larry, thanks, thank you. Brian. Thanks, Brian. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls, one 408 7669 Brian Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. First, first, I'd like to thank uh, Sergio over with KURB uh, for hosting us this weekend in McCallum. It was unbelievable. And also seeing everybody in Point Pleasant in New Jersey on Friday was fantastic. And everyone that supports the President and Freedom Fighter, thankfully, you guys are keeping it on the best sell list. Uh, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, in the battle to save America's soul. Uh, Roger, listening on WHUB in Tennessee. Roger. Hey, good morning, Brian. What's on your mind? Well, you know, uh, the FBI spied on Trump's campaign, the FBI rigged with the uh, the Russian hoax, and now it's proven, or, you know, it's, if they ever do, they're going to have hearings on social media uh, putting its finger on the election. I mean, everybody says move on, move on from 2020. I get all that. But what could be more important than the FBI interfering that, in Americans' elections? Absolutely, with this exposure. But that's a lot different from saying that uh, Philadelphia had a bunch of ballots there and such and such did this. And uh, and, and, we don't want to go through that because there's no proof of it. And if there was proof of it, his millions of dollars worth of lawyers wouldn't be in trouble right now because most upstanding lawyers wouldn't touch the case because there's no proof there. But going into the FBI, talking about what's happened in the past, saying you're going to clean it up when you're president and what Elon Musk is doing – uh, we hope the Republicans will get to the bottom of it to straighten out Facebook, Instagram, and everything else along the way. That's positive. But going back to say ballots was taken from a truck from Long Island, not going to work. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, one 408 7669 Going to be great to have General Michael Linnington back in studio. And you'll have Daniel Green, another veteran, wounded warrior. Uh, he'll talk about what they're doing, why they're still needed, and why we always have to keep them in mind on these holiday seasons. Also, we'll be taking your calls. And Michael Goodwin is standing by. Uh, we're also uh, trying to monitor the situation at the border, as well as uh, looking about the the ongoing negotiations on the budget government shuts down on Friday, unless they come to some type of continuing resolution or omnibus bill. We'll discuss the ramifications on both special. Thanks to everyone in point pleasant, New Jersey for coming out and supporting president freedom fighter. I had great signing there. Uh, and Dana Perino for opening up her, uh, tell me about her great town as well as, and she came down and visited as well as everybody in uh, beautiful McCallum, Texas, just great to see all those great people on the border city there in the eye of the storm. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This would put Argentina on the brink of winning the World Cup. Gonzalo Montiel can win the World Cup for Argentina with this kick. 
And just like that, in penalty kicks, the greatest game that's ever played that I have seen ended, and the World Cup final is through. Argentina beats France in an epic clash in Qatar. Was it done to make uh, this? Will, uh, what it's done to make soccer even bigger? It's done everything. And also, how would you feel if Messi was coming to the MLS? It could be a done deal. Number two. The NSA was working hand-in-hand with the leading uh, Silicon Valley companies, Google and Facebook and Apple, and they were turning over enormous amounts of information, whatever these agencies asked, without a search warrant or anything else. It's true, Michael Greenwald. Twitter files unfolding. Right now, the direct role the FBI had in converting Twitter and I'm sure other entities into doing what they wanted them to do. Unacceptable. Number one. Is that why he didn't go? is that visit? Well, I can't speak to why he has or has not gone. I'm just speaking to the fact that it's a bit more disruptive for the president of the United States to travel than you or I. Yeah, but he didn't go. Keisha Lance Bottoms. Now they're all paying attention. The people, the networks, the politicians. I'm talking about what's happening at the broken border that Biden broke. Michael Goodwin joins us now. Michael, you you know this already. You wrote about it. Now, Democrats, their plan is to blame Republicans for talking about the border that's wide open for saying it's an open border. Can you believe this? Uh, I think the word chutzpah would apply there, Brian. Um, look, the Democrats, uh, every once in a while, when they would be pressed on this, they say, we, we need comprehensive immigration reform. I mean, it was like a blast from the past when comprehensive meant amnesty. And I don't think uh, that that becomes a harder and harder sell. Look, just think of all the fighting that that happened over the years over the dreamers whom everybody thought they were innocent but that the precedent you would be setting if you automatically legalize them put them on a path to citizenship and that has always been the problem that when you make these deals are they final or are they or are they just an invitation to a new generation. So you go back to the Reagan years of 86, there was immigration reform, and they, they roughly 3 million were naturalized, the 3 million illegal immigrants were naturalized. Okay, that'll be the end of it. And then the number grew to 11 million after, uh, you know, by 2000 or so. And, and now what? We have millions more coming in, uh, Many children, babies will be born here. Those babies will be citizens of of the people who came here illegally and then a claim of asylum. The, The one million or so who were undetected by the border agents, they, the gotaways, they called them. Uh, I mean, this is a generational issue that has been created by the failure to enforce existing laws, yeah. by, the, by the dismantling of the Remain in Mexico policy, and now you have probably the lifting of the Title 42 rule which enables uh, more expulsions because of the pandemic. Uh, so it is a holy mess that Joe Biden has created. But, but, but and- you, you wouldn't think so. Listen to Martha Raddatz. She said, listen to who she blames by the question. She's talking to Governor Greg Abbott in Texas about Texas. Cut four. Open borders. I don't think I've ever heard President Biden say, we have an open border. Come on over. But people I have heard say it are you our former President Trump, or Ron DeSantis. That message 
reverberates in Mexico and beyond. It was known from the time that Joe Biden got elected that Joe Biden supported open borders. Uh, it is known uh, by the cartels who have sophisticated information whether or not the Biden administration is going to enforce the immigration laws or not is known across the world, but most importantly, known among the cartels. You believe the question? And that was the same question that Democratic Congress people were asking, old, saying all day. So Martha Raddatz is getting the talking points. Yes, that's exactly what it is, Brian. And I have to, I have to commend uh, Governor Abbott there. I think my head would have exploded. I know, he's so calm. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, to, to such an outrageous uh, thing that she did there, uh, I mean, to deny the reality, Joe Biden is president. This is happening on his watch to say that something, uh, a charge against him is the reason for this nonstop caravan is, is insane. It's malpractice as a journalist, but that's what we've come to expect. Look, they're only now talking about this because of Title 42. They have ignored this story. As I wrote in my Sunday column, if you watch the networks or CNN or MSNBC or only read the New York Times, the Washington Post for the last two years, you would not know that five million people came across the border. You would have no idea why Governor Abbott, why DeSantis, yep. why, the, why Ducey in uh, Arizona, why they are sending so many of these migrants migrants to northern cities to get the attention, why they've sent buses and buses and buses to the uh, stop outside the vice president's residence in Washington. They want help. They want it to stop. But even the New York mayor now, Eric Adams, is demanding help. New York City already has at least 30,000 migrants living in these homeless shelters, some on the streets. Uh, this is what's happening around the country. And the federal government uh, does nothing. It, it leaned on the mayor of El Paso, a Democratic mayor, the forefront of this invasion. Uh, don't declare don't declare a state of emergency. Basically, it will embarrass us. You'll just be reinforcing Republican talking points. I mean, that's essentially what they said to him. Meanwhile, his city is overrun. Right. And uh, it is. And then he uh, ultimately did declare one, but it's way too late. Now in New York, they're asking for a billion dollars. What a joke that is. And there you expect 13 busloads here right to New York City. Uh, Michael Goodwin of the New York Post, so that's a matter of Chicago, Washington. They're doing it all in Arizona, too. How dare you say no? Why should a border city have their life destroyed just because they have to be located on the border? Why shouldn't cities who say come one, come all do the same thing? You also write that there are 275,000 unaccompanied minors. Nobody and everybody should understand this. Michael Goodwin and Brian Kilmeade have nothing against these people. I'm sure most of them are good people. They want a better life. This is just not the way the world works. You just can't leave a country and go to another. Try that in Australia or Canada. Try that in Russia or China. Try that in Japan or South Korea. It doesn't work like that. You can't, that's not the way an immigration country can function. And guess what? The Texas spent $4 billion, $4 billion of Texas state money. And they have zero taxes. They get it from other things. $4 billion on Operation Lone Star to round up these illegals because so many of their citizen security and safety has been compromised. 
You, you know, Brian, I, I think it is uh, a fact that this is something that we've never seen in the country before. Um, it's, it's, as you say, that's not the way the world works. That's not the way the immigration system has ever worked in America. And, and I, I have to commend Donald Trump. He said it best. If you don't have borders, you don't have a country. And think about it, borders. I mean, you look at a map. When you see a map of, of Europe, what do you see? You see borders. Why are the borders there? It's so you can provide some security for, for your own people. We're not yet in a one-world system where people can move freely. You be. need a passport. You, yeah. need, you know, you can't just get on an airplane and say, take me to wherever you're going. I mean, there, there are rules, and immigrants coming to America for hundreds and hundreds of years played by those rules. And suddenly now, the Democratic White House, the Democratic Congress said, what? we don't need no stinking rules. Just come on in. That's effectively what they've done. That, and it, they will keep coming. There will be no end to this. And they there blame no Republicans for, for saying stop. the border's open. And by saying that, it really, because they're pointing out the obvious that you won't pay attention and I, and I was in McCallum, Texas on Saturday, and they say, Brian, wherever you go, you can go to about 10, 15 different places. They have stacks of border wall just sitting there, the, the bollard wall that we pay, you and right. I, everybody listening paid for. And it drives them crazy because their lives have all been affected by this. And they're just they're a transport vehicle. They watch people come in. They watch them get their services. Some they just ransack their houses and go through their farms. I want to get another angle real quick from you. And that's what's been discovered in the six or seven tranches that's been released about Twitter. The last of which shows, if I could paraphrase, even the vice president, the left-wing vice president of Twitter, who was in charge of of, uh, content, was getting offended and being flabbergasted about the amount of pressure put on them from the FBI, demanding things in writing about who was coming in and what they were saying and how they were affected. Glenn Greenwald, of all people, a left-wing journalist, said this, cut 23. One of the very first stories that we reported on back in 2013 when I was working with my source, Edward Snowden, and we got this gigantic archive from the National Security Agency was that the NSA, the secretive spy agency inside the government, was working hand-in-hand in total secrecy with the leading Uh, Silicon Valley companies, Google and Facebook and Apple, and they were turning over enormous amounts of information, whatever these agencies asked, without a search warrant or anything else. And obviously, 2016 and Russiagate was a scandal, a manufactured scandal that came directly from the CIA and the FBI through anonymous leaks to the Washington Post and the New York Times, specifically to interfere in our politics and manipulate the outcome of the 2016 election because they viewed Donald Trump as a threat. And then it comes to 2020, and they want to make sure he doesn't get reelected, it seems, and we got what we got. Well, Brian, uh, in my column Sunday, I I do a little additional piece on this, and my prediction is 2023 will be the year where this whole thing is blown up. Uh, I think Elon Musk has started this by revealing the the internal files, Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, uh, and others, uh, going through these files and releasing what happened there with with the FBI and Twitter. The Post reported the other day that as many as a dozen former FBI officials actually were employed at Twitter in addition to the agents. And so you had a kind of uh, column 
of FBI agents working uh, against Twitter users and working with the FBI. And, you know, Brad, I compare this to the church committee in the mid-1970s and where, where they revealed the raft of domestic spying of the CIA, the FBI, and the IRS. And so I think we're going to have to revisit that. I think we're that was 50 years ago almost, and I think it's time for another church-style committee that goes after this domestic spying. And because that's what this is, this is they're suppressing freedom of speech by by telling Twitter the government is using private companies to suppress the First Amendment. And it is it is spying yep. on these American citizens without, uh, as Glenn Greenwald said, without a search warrant, without a court order. I mean, where's the FISA court in all of this, right? Uh, so I just think that this is something that's ripe to blow open. It's too bad the Republicans didn't gain control of the Senate because the Democrats are fine with it. It's interesting, you know, 50 years ago it was the Democrats crying about this. Now the Democrats are fine with it as long as all right. the spying and restrictions fall on conservatives. Well, I know. You just got to hope everyone reports the House it. is going to have to get this ball rolling. Let's just hope other people understand it. They just want to about Musk suspending their accounts instead of what Musk is revealing. And I think getting a panel in there would, would allow Elon Musk not to step on his own message uh, so the billionaire can focus on other things. But he's done an incredible thing for the country by doing what he's done already. Michael Goodwin, there's so much to write about. It's going to be hard for you to take a few days off during the holidays, but I hope you do. Thank you, Brian. You You too. All right. Meanwhile, General Michael Lennington is going to be uh, joining us in about 15 minutes. Tell us how you can help the Wounded Warrior Project and those who serve. Uh, But next is your calls. Brian Kilmeade Show, so glad you're here. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. one 408 7669 So just a, a quick note. I am tracking. I don't know if you had a chance to read Saturday's New York Times, a full overview of how Russia has totally screwed up this war, got over its skis, and is paying a huge price. But this guy's going to lose up to, he's willing to lose hundreds of thousands of men because he doesn't care about them. Story in Drudge about a coup, which seems to be a, I don't know what Drudge is, is worth these days. But I don't see it. I mean, the guy's just in his own little bubble. But special thanks to the Ukrainians for standing up. We've got to get to those Patriot missiles, and we've got to do it uh, quick. Because every time the Ukrainians uh, hurt a Russian soldier, that helps us. Because those soldiers at war tangentially with America still. Rich lives on WABC in Connecticut. Hey, Rich. Yeah, hi, Brian. Uh, first of all, love your demeanor, your calm reasoning, calm thinking. Uh, specifically on um, refugees, illegal immigrants, the Democrats are calling uh, the illegal immigrants non-citizens and, and have oh. uh, a policy to give them uh, voting. But they're not non-citizens. They're foreign citizens. Yes. They have given up their foreign citizenship. So it's really dangerous, uh, the whole democratic policy. Uh, on standards for uh, resettling refugees, the U.N. standards are, they have 10 main standards. Number one, refugees go to the nearest country. For Cuba, that's Florida. But, and for Mexico, that's the United States. But for the rest of the world, that's not the United States. U.N. standard number two, refugees go to similar culture region. 
And that's a similar culture, that's similar language, uh, religion, ethnicity, heritage. So culture matters, and, and that, that point is being lost in this debate. Uh, well, those, are great, those are two great points. I'll add this. Just think about this, Rich. Since we have all direct, we live in a direct deposit age, we have uh, credit cards instead of cash in our pockets in many cases, you have to take a look at your paycheck. I, I'm doing a lot of year-end things, and I'm, I'm, thankfully I have a great job. But it is stunning to see how much money we are taking home from what we're getting paid. And if you just look at $100, the fact that you're bringing home maybe 40 or 35 or $32, and knowing that the money's not even helping those kids next door, they're helping kids in another country or families in another country, this doesn't, we should be knowing that America's money is going to America's interest, and that includes Americans, not other countries. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we're back. and privileged to have in studio. If you're watching Fox Nation, you know that you recognize them from this morning on Fox and Friends and other appearances, maybe commercials. Uh, general Michael Winnington, the retired uh, general. He's now CEO of Wounded Warrior Project and has been for a few years now. And Danielle Green, Wounded Warrior, who I was able to feature in my, uh, in my book, It's How You Play the Game, and I had a chance to meet you. Uh, at one of an award ceremony again at Wounded Warrior Foundation uh, right in New York City. General predated you. You were actually deployed at the time I think we were doing uh, those award ceremonies. Great to see both of you. Thank you. So, uh, for, for first off, Daniel, before we get your story, you work for Wounded Warriors now, right? I do, seven months and counting. So a lot of people think, hey, we're not, we're not in a war. It's not raging anymore. You know, we pulled out of Afghanistan and went terribly, but that means things like the Wounded Warrior Project don't need as much. That's just not the case. General, we're, we're, the need is greater now than ever before, Brian. As I said this morning on Network Show, uh, up to fifty a day are signing up for what we provide, and that's a variety of programs and services that, first and foremost, connect veterans together with each other in their communities, give them opportunities to regain that sense of camaraderie and cohesion that they have when they were in uniform. That's what that's what Danielle brings to the table. She hosts many of those gatherings, and then help them heal mind, body, and spirit. So why does that matter? Uh, because a lot of times people want to forget. You always hear about the World War II veterans, and they say, well, I don't want to bring it up anymore. I go back to my other life, and that's the old war. I want to turn the page. Why, when you come back, do you, do you think it's important not to do it like that? Well, I think it takes sometimes years. Sometimes it takes 10 years. Uh, veterans have a plan when they take off the uniform. Sometimes that plan doesn't work out. It usually involves either education or, or employment. Uh, for those that have faced trauma, whether in life or in combat, sometimes that trauma, you know, manifests itself years later after you run into some challenges in your own relationships, in your own job, in your own health. And that's what we do. We help those veterans connect and through programs. Heal. That's exactly right. Right. So, Daniel, you now you moved. They got you to Florida. Yes. So uh, you're, you're out of Thank you're not freezing in Chicago anymore or, or Detroit. So, Daniel, when did you become member of the military? When did you become specialist green? I became a member of the military in 2003. I decided that I was ready to serve. And so in 2003, I pledged to serve my country. And that's a little different because, I mean, here you are a college basketball player at this place called Notre Dame. Uh, and you were probably one of the best high school players in your area. What did you do in high school as a player? In, in high school, I was um, pretty dominant. I was the team on the north side, Roosevelt High School. Um, in the north side of Chicago? Yeah, north side of Chicago, yes. What kind of results did you get? Uh, excellent results. It earned me a scholarship to go to the University of Notre Dame. The team but, did well, too? Yes, yes. Right. But I was All-State, All-American coming out of Chicago. So you talked about when you were younger, uh, you know, your dad was not a factor. 
and your mom had addiction issues. Correct. And you fe- used to watch television once in a while when you weren't playing basketball. And you got attracted to the Notre Dame. Why? How? I, I did. I used to watch um, cold Saturday afternoons. And I just remember seeing a touchdown Jesus, which is a seven story mural of um, Jesus with the, you know, touchdown symbols. And I just thought, you know, this place um, must be special. And as a kid, you you need something to lash on to. You need hope when you're in that type of adversity you're going through something so i thought that place was special notre dame and during the commercials i would see military commercials and i thought you know what if i don't go to the university of notre dame i'm going to serve my country but also general isn't it interesting that you're in adverse situations a lot of people get involved in that and danielle saw that and said that's not what i want just as a person that's unbelievable As, as i think you said in the book it's a story that you should make a movie out of i mean what she went through in chicago get the notre dame and then after notre dame Joining the military, tons of opportunities she wanted to give back. It's just a fabulous story. So, Danielle, you saw adversity. You walked through the glass and those horrible courts to play and get, develop your game. But you never developed two hands, and you were used to scoring. And when it came to Notre Dame, you didn't necessarily – that wasn't your role. <laughs> Correct. And you had trouble making the adjustment. I, I did. I did. The game was quicker. The rigor – people forget Notre Dame is an academic um, institution, so the rigor was very tough. And then just acclimating. I had an injury, and I thought coach was just hounding me, hounding me. But little did I know that would prepare me for something bigger, you know, when I went to the military. Rebecca Lobo told me that she was a player of the year uh, eventually. But when she first got to the University <laughs> of Connecticut – uh, Gino Oriema was riding her mercilessly, and she was calling home all the time saying, you know, why did he recruit me? He hates me. He hates me. Mm-hmm. And she, the mom finally said to her, why don't you go up and ask him? And he went up to her, and he goes, he was befuddled. He opened up a drawer. He said, I asked you your goals. You know what your goal was? To be the number one player in college basketball. How else did you expect me to get there? Correct. And that's pretty much what Muff McGraw was seeing with you. Basically, it was like, hey, you wanted to come here. We saw talent in you. You can be the first to graduate from your family, and I was the first to graduate on time from my immediate family. So she saw that in me, and I got a chance to try out for the Detroit Shock, made the final cut, but didn't quite make it. You didn't end really good on great great relations with her, did you? I I didn't, but, you know, over the years you mature. She matures, I mature, and, you know, we're buddies now. I have her on my telephone now. If I want to play golf with her, I can call her. Of course, when the weather gets Gets better, better, we can play golf together. We have that type of relationship now. So then after you you don't don't make Make it with Detroit. You, you, are you engaged at the time? Uh, no, I was not. Before you, before you joined the military, so you right. decided you joined the army. I did. Well, I taught for two years. Okay. I taught at a um, charter school for two years, and then I decided that I was getting older, and if I was going to do it, I needed to do it now. So you got deployed into Iraq? Yes, in two thousand three. How long until you got hit in Iraq? It was four months later, May twenty fifth, two thousand four. I was what, hit. What hit, would happen? I was hit by. I was patrolling on top of a rooftop. I believe it was Al Sadoon and a. Uh, central Baghdad, Iraq, and moments after I, I arrived to the rooftop, two RPGs, rocket propelled grenades, hit a barricade below. I grabbed my weapon, and the next RPG hit me, and I fell to the side. What happened? What do you remember? Uh, I just remember being very angry that I was going to die in this awful country. That's how my thinking was, and I just laid there waiting to die, and at some point I realized that I wasn't going to die, and I remember saying a prayer, and my prayer was just that I survive and that I wanted a child. And believe it or not, I felt a surge of energy hit my body, but I was too weak um, to get up. I could see that my uniform was tattered with blood everywhere. And eventually my teammates came um, to perform first aid and got me to You lost your arm. I lost my arm. Yeah, I did. My dominant left, my left arm. So I was devastated for a little while. But then, you know, I had friends at, in Germany 
you know, at Dawn Stool um, to say hello. I talked to Coach McGraw. Then I went on to Walter Reed, and that's where I first was introduced to a Wounded Warrior Project. Right, and uh, the one thing, General, that she leaves out is the fact that you you really found out what a team was. When that <laughs> team went back to the kill zone uh, to get something that you were missing, what was it? Yes, yeah, so my comrades um, found out that I lost my, my wedding rings. I had just gotten married several weeks, several weeks prior to. They went back up to the rooftop against company commander's order, and they found my hand under several inches of sand, and they were able to return it to me when I, at, in the green zone when I woke and up. Then you're, and then one of the nurses was surprised. They knew who you were. And you got had a connection to Notre Dame. That was in Germany. In Germany. Yes. And called your coach. What did the coach say to you when she got on the phone? Uh, coach was just in shock. She, because when I was keeping in touch with her in Iraq as well, people don't know, we still kept a relationship. And she didn't think I was in harm's way. So when she received a phone call, she was in shock. But then I just told her, hey, coach, I'm okay. But all those years you wanted me to use my right hand, now I have no other choice because I lost my left hand. And she just went silent. <laughs> that is awesome. So when did, how did you find the Wounded Warrior Project? Wounded Warrior Project found me. So from Germany, I went to Army Medical Read, and I was devastated, probably devastated, probably even broken. And someone came to my bedside and welcomed me home and provided me with a backpack that I have today. I still have the backpack today, almost 19 years later, and it had essentials, uh, the colonel, the, the the general here likes to say a Walkman, but they had a CD player, gym shoes. All that uh, stuff we don't need all anymore. That, all that good stuff, yeah. And and so that gave me hope and that gave me purpose because you heard about our Vietnam veterans being left behind. But I felt like with this organization, um, they were going to be there by my side. And they built a community and that connection early on when we were coming back from Iraq. And so for them, I, I'm I'm profoundly grateful. So you got her into a program, got her sense of meaning. When did you really should be a good employee, General? Actually, you were deployed at the time when she was there, but. Warriors like Dan- Danielle that come back and serve their brothers and sisters in arms is what sustains our program. We still have the backpack program in Lonstool. Uh Service members are still getting Because you come back, injured. you have no clothes. You have yeah. nothing. You have have no the, clothes. As yeah. Danielle said, they cut all your clothes off. They leave all your gear. You get there with a hospital gown that's open in the back, and there's nothing there. So it gives you, re-gives you a sense of. Of a, of a personality, and then for your families that fly over, you know, in an instant with nothing, a travel pack for them as well. And it just helps helps them. More important than the backpack comes the promise that we'll be there mm-hmm. with you throughout your recovery, however long it takes, and mm-hmm. we'll help be there with you for the rest of your life. Therapists, psychologists, uh, do you hook up with the real-world community to try to get people like Danielle jobs? She didn't need one because she right. works for you. but Brian, we, we do the full gamut of programs from initial connection in the hospitals through connection back in their communities. We then provide a variety of no-cost programs and services, mind, body, and spirit, Think physical health and wellness, mental health, obviously the invisible wounds of war are huge. And then jobs, jobs, benefits, counseling, Mm -hmm. emergency financial assistance help you regain your sense of purpose and also your ability to feed and lead your family. So when the men and women come up to you, both of you, you as as an officer, maybe they they used to saluting you, but they're used to serving with you, right? Correct. So what, what kind of things do they say to you? Um, we need benefits. Benefits is huge. Um, just that connection, that engagement. I like to add something to why Wounded Warrior Project is needed. When I came home, our VA is great. Don't get me wrong, but they didn't have the resources to help me adjust with my my amputation. So Wounded Warrior Project said, came and said, "Hey, we will build you an adapted vi- adapted bike." And so that's why right. Wounded Warrior Project is important because of the innovation. Um, a lot of the programs that the Department of Veterans Affairs has is for 
uh, retirees. Yeah. Whereas Wounded Warrior Projects, a lot of our events take place when we get off work and, who gets and we connect bike? the families. Donations provide that bike, right? Bikes, Correct. and especially over the holidays, Brian, it really gives families of our warriors yeah. something mm-hmm. under the tree. We're doing, we've done more than a thousand connection events just since October. Those connection events are gift baskets, food drives, stocking stuffers, and then giving our alumni, we call Danielle and her, you know, the hundreds of thousands we serve alumni, they get to give back in the communities Mm -hmm. as well. So going to hospitals, food pantries, orphanages, giving back as well is a big part of regaining that sense of purpose. Um, When Iraq, the surge worked, and then we pulled out too quick, and then they, uh, in comes uh, ISIS, and then we pushed back a little bit. But it was a lot better when we left initially. And then in Afghanistan, you guys surged, was effective reasonably. We were there. And then a new administration comes in and decides to pull out. Danielle, how much harder is it knowing that the country you left isn't as better, much better off as you hoped it would be when you left? You know, I, I, I talked to quite a few veterans who were just devastated by that. And, and Yeah, especially. they were devastated how we just we just left. And all you do is try to console and soothe them. Say, hey, I lost you, my arm there. Yeah, I lost my leg Yeah, you, 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 you try to point them in the right direction so they don't go out and do something catastrophic or hurt themselves. But you try to empathize. You try to stay positive. You know, be thankful that you, you are alive and, and pray that the rest of our troops get out of there in one piece. So, General, there's about 70,000 Afghans who we got out of there. We're looking to get expedited citizenship status or visa status for them. I think it's a great move. Lindsey Graham thinks it's a great move. A lot of Republicans don't. They think it looks hypocritical if we're trying. We're so concerned about the southern border. How can we just make these people, uh, bring these people into our country and say, uh, become one of us? What do Brian, you say? we have to figure it out. I think as a country, you know, we, we could not have achieved our mission in both Iraq and Afghanistan without – our allies that supported us, certainly our interpreters, our partners, government partners, uh, we need to get them back as well. And I know so a lot do of, a thorough background check, but then once they pass it, let them stay. Yeah, yeah Brian, we, uh, the, the pullout was, was very quick. We got some back, but we need to get them all back. And whatever, whatever the administration can do and the new Congress, is, we're, we're fully supportive of that. Of course, we're focused on our nation's wounded, ill, and injured. But oh, as oh, Danielle yeah. said, yeah. you know, when you, when you lose a, a battle buddy, a brother or a sister in arms— right. Um, I just pray that the book isn't fully written on on Afghanistan. What what the Afghan people uh, gave gained two, over twenty years. Gave them twenty years. They understand what life they, could be. They understand freedom, women and girls especially. Schools, freedom, opportunity to educate. That's very hard to keep that crushed, and we'll see where it goes in the future. But I would say this: I think that your generation of fighters, Danielle, and you, General as commanding officer, are as good as any. I mean, you're professional soldiers. The way you're able to adapt to the battlefield in the most brutal enemy possible, it isn't the old fad. Not that it was easy before, mm-hmm. obviously, but what you guys were able to do, and then when you see the Russians struggling the way they are right now and the people we train, the Ukrainians, the way they're performing, the innovation you've done with weaponry and safety and battlefield, I just think that people are focused on when we left Afghanistan and, the, and that we decided not to preserve our gains in, with the surge. But overall, Danielle, you have to feel that that this generation really affords affords themselves well. I, I think so. I think so. I, I, but I, like like General said, we got to keep the focus here on our veterans that are coming in now, our active military duty, and just keep the focus. Because if you go someplace else, then it just opens up Pandora's box. You got to be careful right. with that. But I do think the people that serve deserve credit being part of this oh, elite force of generation. Absolutely. Warfighters. Absolutely. Right. And especially uh, when you think that just take for granted a, another country that's supposed to be formidable 
is dealing with 1930 tactics and medical and the way they have little regard for their soldiers, leaving bodies on the ground. The Ukrainians had to pick up the Russian bodies. That's, we, view, we view the remains as valuable as the person. I think the, I think the opportunities for today's uh, young people to be part of something bigger than themselves, a.k.a. the U.S. military, Brian, are profound. And, and I just hope that in the future they— Every warrior that I've ever spoken to, whether they're wounded or injured, invisible or visible wounds, warriors like Danielle say they would do the same thing again, all over again, because they know they know what it means to protect our country and they know what it means to give other countries the opportunity for freedom that Danielle's service gave to the people of Iraq. Would you do it again, Danielle? I think I would. It was the seven-year-old girl's dream. So, why, yeah, I would do it again. I just wish I could have done ROTC in college. There you go. Wow. I do. I wanted to do it. And they said, no, you're here on a basketball scholarship. It's, that's uh, the only thing I can walk back. That's not easy being that talented. <laughs> I'm so I'm here on a basketball scholarship at Notre Dame. I can't, I can't get my hair the, cut she, in March. You should have made the old, old Army team, believe me. Uh, absolutely. The men's team. So, listen, if people want to give to Wounded Warrior, where do they go? WoundedWarriorProject.org, Brian, WoundedWarriorProject.org. Tons of Ways to get involved in your community, help support community events, especially over the holidays. And if a veteran's listen today that needs to get connected with some of the programs and services that Danielle talked about, please go to the same website or call our resource. And do something good for the holiday season and give to this great organization. Uh, General Mike Lennington, thanks so much. Uh, Danielle, thank you. Great to see you, Danielle Green. Again. (laughs) Happy holidays. Same to you. Back in a moment. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Taking as many penalty kicks, shootouts, and otherwise as any player in the history of the World Cup. In the 1,003rd game of his entire career, the most important kick of his life to date. Rolls it in. This would put Argentina on the brink of winning the World Cup. Yes! Over 88,966 fans at Lucille Stadium. Gonzalo Montiel can win the World Cup for Argentina with this kick. Yes! And just like that, the greatest game you'll ever see. And I think if you watched it back, and even knowing the outcome, I think you'd see the same thing. And then you factor in the fact that two of the best players in the world, one at 35, one at 23, uh, uh, playing against each other, and France defending World Cup champions in the place packed, two-thirds of which pulling seemingly for Argentina, and then you have a, this greatest player ever, one of the greatest, wondering if he's ever going to win a World Cup, and he gets to the final after getting upset in the first game by Saudi Arabia. They call that the greatest upset in history. So <laughs> they gave the whole country of Saudi Arabia the day off the next day. After that, that was in the group play, not even in the knockout round. And to come all the way back and win like that, pretty amazing. Especially when you have an upset like that, you get to panic. Argentina just just did just the opposite. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest-growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade.
Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, one 408 7669 This hour, we're going to be joined by Miranda Devine in a matter of moments on the latest on the unfolding information reeling really coming out of the Twitter releases, as well as what could have happened uh, with Facebook and everything else. We'll do some conjecture there. And also, the letter that was sent out uh, by Peter Schiff, Peter, uh, by uh, Peter Schiff, uh, by Congressman Schiff, uh, Adam Schiff, to all these other media uh, media outlets that you better not change the way you moderate your social media platform because if if not, if you start changing because of what's happening at Twitter, well, you're not going to like the regulations that we bring in. Meanwhile, he's going to the minority. I think it's thuggish. Peter Bogosian is going to be with us too, founding member of the University of Austin. This university has been started by embrace about $100 million to combat wokeness in higher education. It's just the start. You'll hear more about it. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This would put Argentina on the brink of winning the World Cup. Gonzalo Montiel can win the World Cup for Argentina with this kick. Best game ever. Argentina beats France. Could Messi be bringing his talents to Major League Soccer? Number two. The NSA was working hand in hand with the leading uh, Silicon Valley companies, Google and Facebook and Apple, and they were turning over enormous amounts of information, whatever these agencies ask, without a search warrant or anything else. Twitter files. Mike Greenwald points out unfolding the direct role the FBI had in converting Twitter. and Even Twitter executives were uncomfortable with this arrangement. We also have details on the future of Elon as CEO. Number one. Is that why he but didn't is go? that visit? Well, I can't speak to why he has or has not gone. I'm just speaking to the fact that it's a bit more disruptive for the president of the United States to travel than you or I. Please, Keisha Lance Bottom, spokesperson for the president. Now they are paying attention. I'm talking about people, networks, politicians. I'm talking about President Biden's broken border. He's responsible for Miranda Devine joins us from the New York Post, author of Laptop from Hell. Miranda, welcome back. I just got to get you. Uh, I know you must be astounded by what's happened at the border. Do you see the Democrats' latest approach? Blame Republicans for bringing up that the border's open, for making that that's what's bringing people to the border. Can, can you get your head around that? Well, hi, Brian. Yes, I can, because that's their MO. They are utterly shameless. They have the most incredible chutzpah. I mean, they blamed Donald Trump for the chaos at the border previously uh, when, you know, it was the Trump administration that actually got a, got, a, got control of the border. And it's just been bleeding since Joe Biden got in and deliberately dismantled all those Trump-era border protections. And they've been able to get away with having millions of illegal migrants pour across the border because they have a muzzle on the media that services half the country. So there really hasn't been the outcry that there should be if the American people fully were aware of the invasion, that's all you can call it, that's going on at the southern border. And God knows what kind of, you know, criminals and drugs and weapons and whatever else has been coming across, along with people who are just economic migrants who want a better life for themselves. No one blames them, but they've got to come the right way. It's not the way you're supposed to do it. Listen, for example, I just want you to hear it in play before we talk about what's going on on Twitter. Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, cut seven. 
having Republican colleagues go on national TV consistently saying the border is open, the border is open, they're the ones saying the border is open, um, I think their rhetoric has a role to play as well in what the cartels use. Are but you, regardless, I will tell you, the cartels will do anything possible I got it. to explain. So, I mean, that's what you would say. It's amazing how they all speak in hominin. Martha Raddatz, I just want you to hear this question to Greg Abbott. Cut four. Open borders. I don't think I've ever heard President Biden say, we have an open border. Come on over. But people I have heard say it are you, our former President Trump, or Ron DeSantis. So, I mean, and, and it doesn't even matter. You know his answer. I mean, I just could not believe they're all saying the same thing. But for reporters to be saying the same thing as Congress people is ridiculous and embarrassing. It, it is. And unfortunately, we now have uh, a good portion of the establishment media basically operating as uh, an arm of the Democratic Party and an arm of the intelligence apparatus. All right. So I want to talk about what if the latest revelation comes out of, from Matt Taibbi and it talks about how often the FBI was dealing directly with Twitter. Did this even surprise you? Wow. Maybe they're playing the FBI is playing a role in this interview. We're not really sure, but that was a very crisp question. Sometimes, Eric, I'll have long questions or Pete, and then I feel like, well, they got bored. But I don't think they can say I'm bored about this. So let me give you an idea while we get her back. Matt Taibbi tweeted this in July of 2020. San Francisco FBI agent Elvis Chan, get used to that name, tells Twitter executive Yoel Roth, you know that name, he was on the cover of the New York Post once, to expect written questions from the Foreign Influence Task Force, the interagency group that deals with cyber threats. Then Taibbi again comes back and says the question authors seem displeased with Twitter. They, Matt Taibbi came back when Twitter came back and said, yeah, we have no foreign influence. We've been looking at this. We don't see any Twitter playing a role here. The questionnaire authors seem, seem displeased with Twitter for implying in a slow July, 20th, July 20th missive that you indicated you had not observed much decent recent activity from official propaganda actors of your platform. So I was just talking about what Yoel Roth was shocked that's, uh, to a degree that FBI agent Elvis Chan was telling Twitter executives to answer some written questions from the Foreign Influence Task Force about different cyber threats or foreign threats. And when they didn't find any, the, they seemed a little annoyed. FBI did. Arrogance of the FBI is really just palpable in these communications. And, um, I mean, as Matt Taibbi, that the independent journalist, wrote, um, he said that Twitter was basically in a relationship with the FBI that was like master canine, with Twitter being the subsidiary of the FBI. Uh, incredible also that they committed some of this uh, to writing. Uh, I'm, I'm told that there were also communications by encrypted apps uh, between Elvis Chan and various people at Twitter, um, particularly on Signal. So maybe maybe that's available. It should be available in the FBI if the Republicans want to subpoena that material uh, because they're supposed to actually um, preserve any communications they have on encrypted apps. But I'm not sure that's happened in Twitter. So they're trying, the FBI is trying to say, hey, we just do, we get in touch with these social platforms after 2016 when we saw that foreign actors wanted to get involved. Do you think these, that, that these reveal that it's just the FBI trying to worry about other countries or something else? 
No, this is about the FBI. They had 80 agents who were targeting, uh, you know, lo mainly these were low follower accounts belonging to ordinary Americans, people who were just doing things like cracking jokes, engaging in a little bit of satire. And these 80 FBI agents were full-time flagging, analysing, reading, and then demanding from Twitter material like, user location information that included just regular people but also Billy Baldwin was caught up in one of them um, and also just saying to Twitter to take action to moderate these accounts because they'd done something that that the FBI deemed um, you know unsavory like cracking jokes uh, this is not about looking you know searching for terrorists or child exploitation material this is intervening and policing Americans' private speech, and it's illegal. The federal government and an agency of the federal government is the FBI, is not allowed to breach Americans' First Amendment rights by coercing a private company to do their dirty business. How un unusual do you think it is to have so many agents work for Twitter when they retire, like James Baker? Yeah. Now, that is really peculiar. For instance, James Baker, as you just mentioned, the top general counsel, top lawyer at Twitter, who was involved in all of the Russia collusion uh, hoaxes and sabotage of uh, He was Donald James Trump. Comey's counsel, lead counsel, right? Yes, like, uh, yes, of the FBI. And he was his right-hand man. He wrote that pre-exoneration letter for James Comey, for Hillary Clinton. Um, he was involved in every bad thing that happened at the FBI. Then five months before the 2020, the 2020 election, he gets parachuted into Twitter uh, to act as their uh, second top lawyer. And he, we now find was intervening in the decision to uh, censor the New York Post over our Hunter Biden laptop story back before the 2020 election. He was also involved more recently, it got him sacked by Elon Musk, in intervening in the Twitter files revelations. He was uh, making sure that what came through was sanitised. And so Elon Musk fired him immediately. And as well as, uh, as, as this guy, James Baker, there are at least a dozen other former FBI people who uh, infiltrated into the Twitter to go and work there after the 2016 election. And whether it was because they thought that, you know, the FBI would get too hot now that the Trump administration was in charge and there was a Trump, Trump uh, attorney general um, or a Trump-appointed FBI director, which they needn't have worried about Christopher Wray, um, but anyway, they, maybe they jumped ship to Twitter because the heat was too hot, or maybe they jumped to Twitter because they decided that during the Trump administration, this was the way to prosecute the resistance. And uh, they were in um, senior positions, and not just at Twitter, right. also at Facebook, also at Google. Also, there were, see, if you look in LinkedIn and you search up these companies, there were a lot of CIA, former CIA people as well. So it seems that these social media companies or big tech companies had become a sort of a playground for the intelligence community. It was a spooks playground. And also we're told that it wasn't just domestic spies, but also foreign spies. So the, you list the, the list in the New York Post, 
James Baker, you discussed, Matthew Williams, Jeff Carlton, Kevin McElena, uh, Michael Bertrand, Karen Walsh, Doug Hunt, Marco Jazeroski, Vincent Lucerno, and Don Burton all decided, now that I'm retired, let me go over to Twitter. Can you imagine how many are at Facebook and Google and, and tangentially Snapchat and all the other major platforms? And other people would say, hey, Brian, you're being cynical. It's just a well-paying job, something to do when you're done with the FBI. But it's got to – the appearances are at the very least terrible and in Baker's situation more than bad. Really bad and uh, particularly Baker and his interventions on every kind of dirty trick against Donald Trump and then, then as well with Twitter's dirty tricks in censoring uh, a story that was detrimental to Joe Biden. Um, but and, and we know that James Baker was involved in um, advising that that censorship ought to happen. But, so, you know, so, these, these other FBI people, um, they're not just in, you know, you think, oh, it, it's kind of normal. You might hire a former FBI person to run your security, maybe your cyber security or something. No, these people were sprinkled all over, including uh, as, as co-head of the moderation section, the trust and safety section, which was all about censorship. So what is your biggest revelation of this, being that you're already knee-deep in this and you knew about the FBI sitting on the laptop and you knew that they tipped off the social media companies warning them and then they froze the New York Post account and now we have Elon Musk in there sending in some journalists to bring things out. And I always thought, what is Miranda Devine thinking now that we're in our seventh release? Yeah, well, I, I think that the best part of it is we're seeing more and more the um, malign intervention of the FBI, that the FBI was fully politicised. We know that already from, you know, Tony Bobolinsky revelations. We know that from the FBI whistleblowers that have told us. And the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are coming together very nicely. And there'll be a new Twitter dump from Michael Schellenberger, I believe, today. And I got a little taste of it in my column. And there's a very curious communication between the FBI and Twitter the night before we published that laptop story, Hunter Biden laptop story, uh, that was October 13, 2020, at 9.22 p.m., the FBI sent documents to Twitter through a special one-way channel. Now, we don't know uh, what was in those documents, but certainly very curious timing because just a couple of hours earlier, Hunter Biden's lawyer, then-lawyer George Mazier's, um, he'd been called uh, by our our reporters at the Post for comment about the story we're publishing the next day. He called uh, John Paul MacIsaac, who was the owner of that yeah. Delaware computer repair shop, and he asked for the laptop back. He called him a couple of hours before the FBI sent these documents to Twitter through this special one-way channel. So, uh, you know, let's see. Let's see um, what comes out. But it's certainly an interesting coincidence. And the FBI has broken trust with the public to such an extent that we only fear the worst. We do. Uh, no doubt about it. And the question is, now with this exposure, it allows them to question much more intelligently Facebook and the other entities when Republicans pick a speaker, get some chairmen, and go to start investigating. Don't you agree? 
Absolutely. And I think we saw um, Representative Mike Turner talk about subpoenaing uh, the people in the FBI and getting to the bottom of who is the mastermind, who is yes. uh, coordinating all this collusion with the big tech. Uh, also, I think we're seeing it with other members of the intelligence community saw those 51 former high-ranking intelligence officials, including five former CIA directors or acting directors who wrote that letter uh, straight after our story was published, uh, claiming that it was Russian disinformation. That was a lie. That was false. Those people should have their security clearances stripped from them. And I think this uh, new Republican House will be a lot less lax than the previous one, where they allowed people like Miranda, I have, to, I have to hold it there, but thanks so much. I cannot wait to, to get this next tranche. Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we're back. Only got a couple of minutes. I went late with Miranda, but you know how fired up she is. I want you to hear real quick. Um, basically, when we get back, I'm going to talk to Peter Bogosian about revamping the University of Austin, uh, what they did by launching that new college in uh, Austin, Texas. It's combating wokeism, getting back to school, uh, getting back to learning things, learning a profession, and getting away from being politically correct and equity and all these other buzz terms that have sickened most of us uh, from day one. We got away from America. But also, the fact is, now we see Democrats incensed about social media, determined to find out why certain journalists are banned, accounts are suspended, finding out if they should be immune from liability. How rich is that? Seeing that the New York Post, so many journalists, the press secretary of the United States, the president of the United States, the president's son, Don Jr., shadow banned. And nobody was concerned about these commentators and others that were the Daily Caller and others that have been banned and suspended. But now that a handful were suspended for two weeks, we ended up being two days. Then you're worried. I mean, you don't think we have any memory of this? Elon Musk has done so much good. I just wish he'd calm, a lot, calm down a little bit and put somebody else in charge daily. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's time to tell you something new and heartening, and that is there's a new university. It's raised over $100 million, and it's called the University of Austin, and it just fights wokeism in higher education, which we know is prevalent everywhere, even places we didn't think existed. That's what prompted Peter Bogosian, the founding member, to take action along with others, and they finally are ready to go. Uh, Peter, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you having having me on. So tell me the concept and what prompted it. So what prompted it is, is you're correct. There's been an ideological capture of universities in the English-speaking world. And if we we have time, I want to talk about how that spread outside the English-speaking world to places like India. And so many faculty members are just sick of it. In, In fact, right after the University of Austin was announced, 
over 5,000 inquiries from academics looking for positions. Wow. Uh, I know, that's amazing, right? 5,000 and thousands and thousands of inquiries from parents and students. So, you know, it's it's about the universities have lost their way. So the University of Austin is exclusively concerned with the pursuit of truth and intellectual pluralism. So, for example, uh, admission to the university is based on merit, not any other characteristic like race or sexual orientation or sexual status or height or weight, anything. It's just, it's a purely merit-based system. A radical concept, I know. Yeah. So it's merit-based. Uh, you're going to be based in Austin, Texas, right? Correct. Uh, the opening will be 2024. This next summer, we have the Forbidden Classes program, and that is in Dallas. But the university itself is in Austin. And so... Uh, we're going to have a number of programs, uh, and uh, Leon Cryer, who's the former architect of Prince Charles, is drafting the UATX's campus master plan right now. So when you talk about uh, commitments, you have $100 million raised. Is it going to be an accredited Correct. school? Correct, yeah. So that's one of the things that, that the and I am not in the administration, as you said in the intro, I'm just a founding faculty member. But, you know, when you're when you're trying to do something like this, Brian, it's just so ambitious, and you're fighting so many monsters at the same time, so many entrenched, um, and we could talk about that if you want, entrenched interests that don't want something like this to succeed. You have you have to build this from scratch. So you have to think, oh, well, should we be accredited? Should we not? The accrediting agencies are kind of, if you don't mind me borrowing a, a turn of phrase, kind of drawing from the same swamp. But yeah, we decided to go th- through the accrediting route. And the reason for that is accredited degrees just matter more. So you can only opt out of the pre-existing infrastructure for so long uh, before reality com- comes to get you. So, yeah, it will be accredited. So this was – you were involved in all this. You were assistant philosophy professor at Portland State University, right? Correct. And and what did you witness there specifically that really made you think, I got to take action, but you're not going to chase me out from what I want to do? <laughs> This interview is this interview is not long enough to talk about the derangement that I experienced. I wrote about it in my resignation letter on Barry Weiss's Substack. I mean, it was it was just a house of madness. Uh, there was it prevented me from doing my job. There were it was a it ceased to be anything like finding truth, intellectual diversity, and it was entirely about race, gender, sexual orientation, not offending people, not not saying things. So everybody was walking on eggshells, you know, promoting the right narratives. I, I went into the dean. I, I tried to get a an interview or, or have a discussion with the president to tell him I was deeply concerned about what was happening at Portland State University. In fact, I asked him repeatedly for a five-minute meeting. He would not grant me a five-minute meeting. Finally, the dean, one of the deans, granted me a five-minute meeting, and I went in, and I said, you know, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education lists Portland State University as one of the worst schools for freedom of speech in, I think it was 2020 or 2021, and I said, so then I waited, and the dean, and I kid you not, turned to me, looked at me directly and said, it's not a bad thing to be on those lists. Wow. So I I realized that was a huge awakening moment for me because uh, 
while I had been fighting this from day one, I realized that this was not a bug of the system, lack of speech, lack of cognitive liberty, pushing narratives. This is a feature of the system. And if you don't go along with it, we're coming for you. And they subjected me to virtually every investigation one could think of. And, and you know, look, I'm not unique. This happens to people all the time. I did, um, unlike other people like Brett Weinstein, who was more or less of a victim in, in, in this whole thing from Evergreen, I was not a victim. I knew exactly what I was doing, and I was fighting back. Also, you have a partner, Barry Weiss, who's been all over Substack and is doing a lot of the dissemination of what's going on at Twitter. Correct. Correct. Barry Weiss, Neil Ferguson, Ayan Hersia Lee. There are many board members and, and uh, founding faculty. That's the other thing. You know, there's been a shift in education because of the Jordan Peterson effect where there's a rise of the public intellectual. And so people who move in the public space, be it on Twitter or give – I don't know if you've seen the, the pictures from Jordan Peterson's events, but they're absolutely massive, tens of thousands of people. Dave Rubin's a friend of mine. He was texting me pictures of these events that they would do together, just absolutely massive. So, we, you know, the University of Austin is, a, is getting the best faculty, public intellectuals, people who have – people who are atheists, people who are Christians, people who have all kinds of different commitments, political orientations. And then we're going to present the best arguments and let the students decide. So have you figured out things to the event of how many majors are going to have sports teams? You've picked out the locations, it sounds like. Now you're lining up the professors through your applications. But to launch right. as quick as you're going to be, do you have answers to those questions? Yeah, that's a, it's a remarkable timetable. I mean, this would usually take decades, and it's going to be in f- four years. So it's, it's a remarkable timetable. And I think that the, one of the reasons for that is because the need is so great. There's such an urgency. And that's the other thing is we have to figure out all this stuff from scratch. So will there be a sports team? Will there be anything more than a basketball hoop? Will there be grades, you know, or, or like, um, you know, A, B, C, D, or will there be essays, you know, that a professor would write an essay on a student's performance? Will be there comps? Uh, so if, if think about it like this, you, we have an opportunity, or you have an opportunity to build a university from scratch. You can look at everything everyone's done that succeeded and failed. What do you do? Right? It's a massive question. And the way they answer that is to bring in the best minds for workshops to figure out how to build the best university from scratch. A university, again, based on intellectual pluralism, ideological diversity, which the universities do not have now, and placing truth front and center. And I think if that's your North Star, then you can rival the Ivies. I was, I was just reading something last night. I don't want to go too far afield, but the current president of Harvard University, uh, I don't know if you've seen her resume, but it's it's shockingly slim. And I went to Google Scholar, and I tried to Google Google her to see what her accomplishments were, and she didn't have a profile set up. So I couldn't see in, – in the academy, you look at these things called H indices – and that basically tells you how much someone's published, what kind of traction they have. And so I think that there is a crisis of confidence now, well, in the whole society in general, but in, the, in our institutions, but in academic institutions in particular. So you, you mentioned a couple of things. You said forbidden classes. What do you mean by that? Things people won't talk about, uh, things people are afraid to talk about or – there's kind of a taboo. Like so race, example, gender? 
Correct. Sexual orientation. Yeah, it, it, the biggest one is actually trans issues. If, if I were to put a hierarchy, that would be at the top. And so debates, for example, they had a debate between uh, Kathleen Stock, who a, was, was a, uh, a philosophy professor who was treated horrifically. In, in a sane world, I wouldn't have to mention this to you, but I will. Uh, she's a lesbian. And she's in favor of women's only spaces. In other words, people who were born male should not access women's only spaces, prisons, uh, uh, changing rooms, bathrooms, etc. And she had a debate with with uh, Deidre McCluskey, the, the famous economist. And uh, Deidre McCluskey is trans, and it was a remarkable experience to, that those sorts of things simply would not you you just would not happen to. At a current university, you just wouldn't see it. Understood. And also, you mentioned India. So this is infiltrating into other countries. We know it's all over Europe, the political correctness. Correct. It's utterly not just political correctness, but the suite of derangements that come with that. I wrote the the forward to a book called Snakes in the Ganga by an Indian public intellectual, Rajiv Maholtra. And this book is just mind-blowing. It's 864 pages that talks about what it calls neo-colonialism. So, you know, in relation to traditional colonialism, where the English, for example, would go into the Congo, ideas coming out of U.S. universities neo-colonize. They colonize Indian universities, and they spread woke poison to them. So this is a phenomenon right. that's happening all over the world. I was just in Hungary and Romania for two months, and the government is taking great pains to make sure that wokeism doesn't infect its educational Yeah, system. I know what's going on in Hungary. They're really pushing back, trying to get control of that society, uh, and I think in a positive way. Peter Bogosian, congratulations on all this. Uh, for people want to help out or find out about more, where do they go? Uaustin.org. If you're a faculty member and you're looking for a position and you're just completely sick of the madness Think about dropping an application. If you're a parent, think about your kids can go to the Forbidden Classes program if you're in college and you want to apply or senior in high school. And those are free, 100% free, not charged at all. And they even pay the plane ticket, uaustin.org. Got it. Hey, Peter, thanks so much. Have a great holiday. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it, man. You got it. one 408 7669 When we come back, we'll finish up this hour with your calls. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. I'm just looking at the clock right now, and it seems to me that we really have not discussed much about the World Cup. And before we do, I just got to tell you, that it was uh, when you have uh, Mbappe as taking on Messi. So it's just like Jordan against Larry Bird uh, towards the end of his career. It is like uh, LeBron. uh, And it's more like Michael Jordan and Kobe going at their best in the biggest game with championship game seven on the line because with the World Cup, there's one and done. And then you have overtime, and then you have penalty kicks right after. But to see that game, and if you played, let me know. You can write at BrianKillMe.com. If you watch soccer for the first time in a length and are, are suddenly sold, or if you saw that game 
and thought like me was the best game ever. Here's how it sounded at the end. This is the uh, here's a little of the the goals back and forth. By the way, great calls from the broadcast team and great job for Fox Sports. Cut 35. Taking as many penalty kicks, shootouts, and otherwise as any player in the history of the World Cup. In the 1,003rd game of his entire career, the most important kick of his life to date. Rolls it in. This would put Argentina on the brink of winning the World Cup. Yes! Over 88,966 fans at Lucille Stadium. Gonzalo Montiel can win the World Cup for Argentina with this kick. Yes! And he did. But the back and forth in overtime was stunning because you had a game in which Argentina was up 2 nothing and dominating and almost got the third. They come out in the halftime. They still dominate. Nothing changes. France gets one quick goal, and then they get another one right away. England knows exactly what that's like. And then they go into overtime. Cut 34. Martinez is going to get to that one. Knocks it down for Messi. Into the middle. And then they went into penalty kicks. Just awesome. Just great display to see that wide open type of play with great defenses and great offenses. It makes me wonder if there's even more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Unplugged. Reclaim your privacy from big tech snooping with Unplugged. Visit Unplugged.com. So it's one of the most bizarre finishes in NFL history that you will ever see forever. Las Vegas Raiders going against the New England Patriots. Raiders going nowhere. The Patriots hoping to get a good spot in the playoffs. Tie game 24-24 with three seconds left. And see if you can make it out on audio. On video, it tells the story. Game tied 24. Just going to overtime, right? So then running back Ramadre Stevenson, who had up until that point enjoyed a monster game, just grabbed another huge gain. But as he ran into Raiders territory, the clock ticked down to zero, meaning if Stevenson was to be tackled, the game would go into overtime. So in the hope of snatching out a win and avoiding an extra 10 minutes of play, Stevens decides to throw the ball backwards to his teammate, Jacoby Myers. Myers caught the lateral and also attempted to keep the play going by throwing it to a teammate. But as he tries to throw it to quarterback Mac Jones, the ball was caught by Raiders defensive end Chandler Jones, who then would just win the game. Watch. Uh, Stevenson is anyone gonna is inside the 30, flips it back. Stanford band nowhere in sight. Uh-oh. It's picked off. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Incredible! Chandler Jones takes it in and wins the game for the Raiders. Have you ever seen an ending? I have never seen anything like that. I have no idea why he was doing that. Oh my goodness! Uh, It makes absolutely no sense. And a Bill Bill Belichick run team where they do the traditional to to the mundane in great detail. Who would ever instinctively just throw the ball back to a quarterback? With the game tied at 24 already going into overtime. This is the type of play that you do when you're down by a touchdown. It's, it's almost as he was confused. win now or the yeah. game is over. It's a different. You're running around the base in baseball or in basketball. Sometimes you forget how many timeouts there are, a la Chris Weber. I mean, this is just the biggest bonehead of play ever, and it could cost them uh, the playoffs. Next, OCD could be triggered by too much screen time. This is incredible. The University of California did a study. They report the odds of developing OCD among preteens over a two-year period increased by 15% for every hour spent on a video game and 11% for every hour spent watching videos. 
The findings will surely give parents more reasons to wonder and limit their kids. Uh, Quote, children who spend excessive time playing these games report feeling the need to play more and more and more and being unable to stop despite trying. I've never felt that way, but I understand it is something uh, that's got to be looked at. Again, another reason to think that we should get a hold and go to more traditional levels of play. By the way, if you want to quit smoking, you think vaping's a way? George Washington University says most dual users, people who both smoke and vape, are likely to carry on consuming both products. Vaping has a reputation for being safer. However, the study finds they fail to reduce the habit of uh, at, a, at a population level. So another reason, 4 in 10, keep smoking after trying e-cigarettes. Uh, vaping was about to boom. It went bust. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for everybody who came out and uh, came out over in McCallum, Texas, as well as Point Pleasant over the weekend. It was just great. And if you want to get uh, the President Freedom Fighter or any of my books, if you get it to me today or right away, we can get it out to you by and get it by Christmas. BrianKilmeade.com. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.